Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time we looked at the King James Version, which is one of the strictest formal equivalence Bibles ever made. This time, we are going to analyze two Bibles on the other end of the spectrum, the Message Bible and the Passion Translation. These two versions share a number of characteristics in common. For example, both are very popular, both were done by single translators, and both employ a very free application of dynamic equivalence. Here now is episode 346, part 17 of our Bible class, Evaluating the Message Bible and the Passion Translation. First, I want to look at Eugene Peterson. Next, I want to analyze specific verses from the Message Bible. Then, we want to look at Brian Simmons' strategy and analyze the Passion Translation. So, pretty simple. We look at the translation philosophy and then examples, translation philosophy and examples, and then I'll make some concluding remarks. Eugene Peterson studied Semitic languages in grad school. He pastored a church for 29 years, and he taught seminary for seven years. He finished work on the message translation in the year 2002, and his aim for the message translation was to target people who were from the unchurched background, that's people who have never been to church, and those who are jaded, those who have been to church their whole lives, and they, they read the Bible, and it's just like, it's just not connecting with them. And so his aim is to make the Bible easy to understand for non-Christians, as well as fresh and exciting for jaded Christians. Some people think the message translation is not a translation, it's just a paraphrase. It's where he took an already existing English version and rewrote it in his own words. That's not true. Peterson did translate this Bible. Uh, and the result was an incredibly readable Bible. The early versions didn't even have verses in them. And Peterson envisioned the message as what he calls a reading Bible. He didn't think it should replace one's study Bible, but that it should be something that you can enjoy as a reading Bible. And so like in, in most books, you don't have verses in them, right? So he took the verses out so you'd have like whole chapters and it would just flow very nicely paragraph by paragraph. So let's take a look at some specific examples in an effort to evaluate the message Bible. First up, we have Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, pretty familiar to most of us. And I have Eugene Peterson's version, the message, compared to Robert Alter's version. Each of these is a single translator version. They're opposites. Robert Alter is trying to be as literal as possible, and Eugene Peterson is trying to be as idiomatic in English as possible, as readable as possible. So you have the super literal, a super readable. It'll provide us a nice contrast to see the differences. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3 in Robert Alter's version reads, When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. However, the message reads, First this, God created the heavens and earth, all you see and all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke, light, and light appeared. Uh, I know which one I think is more exciting. <laughs> it certainly is the message, right? But there are a couple of 
problems here. First of all, this phrase, all you see, all you don't see, is completely absent from the Hebrew. And what Peterson is doing here is he is inserting his own theological belief that creation was ex nihilo, uh, from nothing. So he's saying that when God created the heavens and the earth, it's everything. Everything is what God created. Whereas in the Hebrew, there's an ambiguity. It could be translated as God created everything, or it could be translated as when God began to create everything, he said, let there be light. And so, uh, whereas the Hebrew preserves that ambiguity, Peterson says, no, 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 this is creation ex nihilo. I know that probably from seminary somewhere, somebody smart told him that that's the way it is. And so he put that into his translation, even though the Hebrew doesn't say that at all. Uh, secondly, this phrase where it says, this God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. That's also not what the Hebrew says. The, what the Hebrew says is the word hovered. And in a place like, for example, Deuteronomy 32, 11, that word is used of a bird. But in Jeremiah 23, verse 9, that word is used of trembling bones. And it's interesting because the standard Hebrew lexicon that people use, translators use, called the Halot, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, actually cites Genesis 1-2 and specifically discourages bird imagery for translating that verse. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Could it be that? Maybe? Is Genesis somehow foreshadowing Jesus' baptism where a, a dove came down onto the Jesus while he's coming out of the water? Maybe. I don't know. But you don't really have much of a choice here because he inserts his way of seeing it into the text. Let's take a look at another verse. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Robert Alter's version reads, Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your might. Eugene Peterson's version. Attention Israel, God, our God, God, the one and only. Love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love him with all that's in you. Love him with all you've got. Both translations expurgate God's name. It's taken out. Robert Alter actually leaves the clue to the crime scene with the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So we know God's name is actually there in the background, whereas Peterson just removes all evidence and just overuses the word God here. So what the verse originally said was that Yahweh is Israel's God. Yahweh is one. But in Peterson's version, you just get this like stuttered God effect. God, our God, God, the only one and only. I mean, it's, you just lose the whole flavor of what the verse is actually trying to say. You know, the Philistines have Dagon, the other nations have their gods, and yet Israel has Yahweh as their one God. So we just kind of lose the whole meaning of what Jesus calls the most important commandment in the entire Bible in this version. Let's look at another example. This is Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Robert Alter's version reads, Happy the man who has not walked in the wicked's counsel, nor in the way of offenders has stood, nor in the session of scoffers has sat. But the Lord's teaching is his desire. In his teaching, he murmurs day and night. Eugene Peterson's version says, How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along dead-end road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to God's word. You chew on scripture day and night. The problem is that the Hebrew does not match what Peterson did here at all. So, for example, the Hebrew starts with the man who has not walked, and then it talks about 
he has not stood and he has not sat. You can see the progression is from walking to standing to sitting, whereas Peterson reverses it. He starts by hanging around and then slinking along, which is movement, and then going. So, you know, he just loses the whole meaning of the original Hebrew. He got so focused on, oh, how do I, you know, grab people's attention that he lost the progression that Scripture had in it. Uh, also, if you're standing in the way of offenders, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as uh, slinking along dead-end road, okay? Because there are lots of offenders, lots of scoffers, and lots of bad people, if we just be, want to think about it for a second, who don't end up on dead-end road, who end up successful in life. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. For this I use David Bentley Hart, How blissful the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Most of us know this as, uh, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, right? But you get the same idea. Whereas the message reads, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. I am trying to be respectful here and restrain myself, but that is a wild translation. That is a wild translation. That is not even close to what the Bible says, the Greek the message also didn't pick up on the fact that Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 37.11. In Psalm 37.11, the message reads, Down-to-earth people will move in and take over, relishing a huge bonanza. What? Uh, that's, that's not at all how... So, like, the message translates the same words totally different between Psalm 37 and Matthew 5.5. 5. And both of them is talking about how in the end, at least in the context here, when the kingdom arrives, the gentle, the meek, the humble will inherit the land. They will inherit the earth. All of that's lost. Here, it's just a matter of having a state of mind, isn't it? You just have the right state of mind. You just realize you're content with who you are. And then suddenly you own everything that can't be bought. I mean, it just totally changes the meaning of what the Bible says. John 3.16, one of the most famous, if not the most famous verse in the entire Bible. David Bentley Hart's version reads, For God so loved the cosmos as to give the Son, the only one, so that everyone having faith in Him might not perish but have the life of the age. Whereas the message reads, This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. So on the one hand, you have life of the age, which is typically referred to in most versions as eternal life, although life of the age is actually more accurate, so props to David Bentley Hart there. Whereas the Eugene Peterson version has a whole and lasting life. Peterson has changed something related to the time of resurrection and realized it in the present. Just like in Matthew 5, 5, it's not the reward when the kingdom arrives that people would inherit the land. No, no, no. It's, it's a state of mind now. So it is with John 3, 16. There is no eternal life in the message version of this verse. It's just saying, look, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have a whole and lasting life. If somebody died at 85 years old, you'd say, well, they had a whole and lasting life. Right? So, I mean, it really does change the meaning because Peterson is injecting his interpretation into his translation, and this is what we end up with. Secondly, we could say that not everyone who believes in Jesus has a long life. Do they? What about the Apostle Paul? Did he die as an old man, uh, retired and enjoying the beach? No. 
No, Paul was beheaded. He was executed. He was murdered for his faith. So what does that mean? He didn't believe in Jesus? I mean, you can't, you just can't go that way with it because it ends up going against the witness of so many wonderful women and men of the faith who have stood for their faith and because of it have suffered. Moving on to another example, John 14, 28, David Bentley Hart's version. You would have rejoiced that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. So that's the phrase right there, the Father is greater than I. Eugene Peterson writes, you would be glad that I am on my way to the Father because the Father is the goal and purpose of my life. Once again, this is totally not what the Greek says here. I don't really understand why Peterson changed it, but he did change it. This version removes ambiguities. You're not going to find a lot of ambiguities. You're going to have Peterson deciding which way the verse should be understood and then making the verse go that way in his translation. Secondly, he injects personal theology into scripture. Third, there's no distinguishing between interpretation and translation. They're one and the same. And let me tell you something. If you have the same theological beliefs as Eugene Peterson, you're going to love the message. That's not the role the Bible plays. The role the Bible plays is not to confirm your evangelical beliefs. The, the role the Bible plays is to tell you what God has inspired so that you can measure your beliefs up against it and change them to align with what Scripture says. The Message Bible is not reliable. It is sometimes brilliant. I can recognize that. But other times, it's inaccurate. So last of all, it's not recommended. I do not recommend the Message Bible for use unless the reader can evaluate against the original languages or a literal translation. If you're going to be careful and you're going to line up against you know, the original languages or a literal translation and you have your message over here and you're going to evaluate it line by line, that's really the only proper way to engage with this version because otherwise it's just too loaded with personal interpretation to be trustworthy. And let me tell you something, if you're comparing it line by line, you're not really benefiting from the whole point of the message, which is to be a reading Bible, to, be, to sit there and just enjoy. Uh, so let's move on to our next subject for this episode, which is the Passion Translation and Brian Simmons. Brian Simmons was trained as a linguist in college, and he became a missionary in Panama. He served there in Panama for decades, planning churches among the Kuna people, and he even co-translated the New Testament into the Payakuna language. Simmons came back to the United States and pastored a church in Connecticut for 18 years, after which he began work on a new translation of the Bible. Now, this ends up being called the Passion Translation, and the aim of this translation is to transfer the, quote, essential meaning of God's original message found in the biblical languages to modern English, end quote. So that's really the focus is the essential meaning. It's not trying to be word for word. It's not trying to even really be thought for thought. It's trying to almost like peer beneath Scripture to get to the, the, whatever the essential meaning is and bring that out. So the Passion Translation calls itself essential equivalence. So we had formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence, the CSB coined optimal equivalence, and now the PT is coining this phrase essential equivalence, and it calls itself a heart translation because it's designed to engage with your emotions while you read scripture. 
Like the message, the Passion Translation sometimes wows and fla with flashes of insight. You're like, wow, this verse is just so incredible in this version. But other times, it reshapes Scripture into the translator's own personal theological mold. And that's really problematic for us. So let's look at just a few examples. And I'm not going to go into as much depth as the message. The message is way more popular. It sold 16 million plus copies, whereas the Passion Translation... I think it's still not even fully out yet. I think they did the Psalms and the New Testament, but they're still working on the Old Testament. But it is up and coming, and I, I do see a lot of people using it, so I wanted to address it here with you. So this is from Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 6. The New Revised Standard Version reads, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Whereas the Passion Translation reads, Please, don't stare in scorn because of my dark and sinful ways. My angry brothers quarreled with me and appointed me guardian of their ministry vineyards, yet I have not tended my vineyard within. Here, Simmons changed from a girl darkened from long hours working out at a vineyard to someone appointed to a position in ministry who fell into dark and sinful ways because they didn't tend to their own inner spiritual life with God. That is totally not what this meant in its original context. There's just no way that that's what it means. I mean, maybe you want to allegorize it and say, oh, this is a secondary meaning or in light of other things, we think this is applicable today or something like that. Sure, but that's interpretation. That's not, that's not Bible translation. You see what I'm saying? So there's no way that Song of Songs is talking about ministry and all these other things. It's talking about a farmer who's got a suntan, right? And it's a love story. Uh, now, I will admit this though. I showed you this earlier when we looked at uh, episode five, Jewish translations, that the stone edition of the Tanakh, which is a Jewish translation of the Old Testament, allegorized the entire book of the Song of Songs and put that as the main translation but then in the uh, footnotes, they put the actual translation so that you would know what it really says, which I, I objected then to that, and I'll object now as well. But this is even one step further where uh, Simmons is putting in his allegory as translation, and we don't get the original text at all. We're just led to believe this is the right way to, to see and read these scriptures. This is from Psalm 91, verse 5. The NRSV reads, you will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day. Whereas the Passion Translation reads, You will never worry about an attack of demonic forces at night, nor have to fear a spirit of darkness coming against you. So the terror of night, that phrase, has, be, has changed to an attack of demonic forces at night. The arrow that flies by day has become a spirit of darkness coming against you. These are totally different things. Once again, we have interpretation substituted as translation. Look, if you want to interpret it that way, God bless you. That's your business. But you, you can't change the Bible to be your interpretation and then claim that you're just doing a translation. That's not a translation anymore. It's your interpretation of what you think it should say as opposed to what it really does say. It really does say terror of night. You think terror of night means demonic forces. But it didn't say demonic forces. So that's really the issue that the Passion Translation really faces over and over again is this interpretation issue, very similar to the Message Bible. 
Uh, he's basically taken literal warfare imagery of terror and an arrow and translated that into spiritual warfare imagery that we find in the New Testament. Let's look at one last example from the Passion Translation. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 38. In the NRSV we read, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, and it goes on from there, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, so it just ends with the word powers here in verse 38. The Passion Translation says, For I am convinced that his love, so they slip in his love where it's not in the verse, uh, but it's looking down to verse uh, 39 where the love is going to come up. They bring the love in a little early. Will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. So they inserted his love twice in this verse. It does not say love in this verse, verse 38. It says it in verse 39, and the Passion Translation is going to say it again in verse 39. But their goal is to, is to pull on your emotions as much as possible. And love obviously does that. So there's, there's extra love in verse 38. And uh, I don't see that that's the role of the translator to insert in words and change what the Bible says. Furthermore, the actual Bible says angels. Simmons Bible says fallen angels. The actual Bible says rulers. Simmons Bible, the passage translation says dark rulers. Or life. It says life in the original, and he said, changes it to life's troubles. Look, he might be right about all these things. That they, they, When it says life, it really is referring to the troubles of life. Okay, Maybe he's right, maybe he's not, but that's your interpretation. This is the, the problem that I see with the Passion Translation. It occasionally removes original meaning, replacing it with spiritual warfare, prosperity gospel, and other theology. He double and triple translates to bring out multiple meanings, especially of Hebrew. We didn't really get into this, and I don't want to take too much time with it, but if you read especially in the Psalms, uh, say for example, Psalm 23, the most famous Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack, right? He he will double translate that term shepherd to shepherd, and then he'll translate it second phrase to friend, right? Uh, so this is a, what I call a double translation. Sometimes he'll do a triple translation. And what is, what is Simmons doing here? He's taking a word, and just imagine a word is a piece of fruit. He's taking that Hebrew word in his hand, and he's just squeezing it until all the juice comes out, right? And, and so that word sometimes means one thing, other times it means something else. And so Simmons is going to translate it every way it can be translated. It's sort of like the Amplified Bible of, of old times where you get all the different synonyms, except this is much more stylistic, much more um, effective, I would say, than the old Amplified. So Simmons' version, the Psalms are actually going to be longer. Like you compare a Psalm where he translates the same, so you have one phrase in Hebrew becomes two phrases in English, or even three phrases in English, right? And that's because he believes that there's this uh, multiple meanings approach to language. Um, and I think sometimes that's the case. Robert Alter makes a point that the Hebrews especially enjoyed the sort of like different shades of meaning and the different ambiguities of the Hebrew language. Uh, but I think what Simmons does is so far beyond what any linguist would ever approve of because what he's doing is he's disregarding how that word functions in that sentence and he is going to generate multiple sentences so that that word can be all it can be. 
So like, for example, the word bank, this is just a silly example. The word bank, it can mean a place you go to get money out of, right? Or it can mean part of uh, the road, right? Like the, 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 the bank of a road where it, it angles so that your car doesn't fly off as you're coming off the highway. Um, and it could mean the bank of a river, right? It can mean a lot of different things. And there's probably other terms I, I can't think of right now. It's like a verb, you can, you can bank on it or whatever. Okay, so if I encounter the word bank, it doesn't mean both of those at the same time. It doesn't mean a place that stores your money and a turn on a road at the same time, right? It means one or the other. Simmons is saying, oh no, it means all of them. Let's translate it all of them. And so that's what you get a lot in the Passion Translation, which you don't see in other translations. This is just distinctive to the Passion Translation. The Message did not do this. Other translations do not do this. Uh, as far as I know, this is the only translation that does this that I'm aware of. He also adds in emotional words to intensify the reading experience. So, for example, in Ephesians 5.2, which mentions the word love, he translates it as extravagant love. The Greek does not have the word extravagant in there, but in the Passion Translation, everything's extravagant, everything is exciting. The word love shows up way more than it does in the original because he's trying to, to you know, engage with your emotions. I would not recommend the Passion Translation for use without careful comparison to the original languages. And, and really, I, I would just recommend staying away from it, to be honest. You know, I've, in this evaluation, I've tried to be as charitable as possible. I know that uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, the late Eugene Peterson, was a wonderful man. Um, and he had a great heart for the people of God. Uh, I, don't, I don't know as much about Brian Simmons, but based on the fact that he dedicated so much of his life to translating the Bible, living in Panama, ministering among a, a people that didn't have a Bible in their own language, that he took all that time to learn the language, that he served as a pastor in Connecticut for 18 years. You know, I, I'm sure these are well-intentioned people that really wanted to serve God in translating. However, at the same time, they are flawed people. They are flawed human beings. And I believe that their translations have enough interpretation in them, injected into them, so as to make them, not intentionally so, but deceptive for us today reading them. Um, and for that reason, I think you should really just stay away from them. Furthermore, I think you need to be careful Let's say, for example, you post on social media somewhere and you, and you quote a verse and you quote it from the Passion Translation. You know what you're doing? What you're doing is you're endorsing that translation to all your followers on social media and you're saying, hey, I, I think this translation is really great. So now they're going to go read the Passion Translation or the Message Bible or whatever because they see that you're endorsing it. So I think you have to be careful with that. And I think you also have to be careful if you're a, a preacher or a pastor or a teacher of the Bible what versions you use. It's not really acceptable to just ch check through a whole bunch of different versions till you find one that sounds good. It's not, it's not a question of does it sound good. They sound awesome. I completely agree. The message sounds way better than pretty much other, any other version other than the Passion Translation, which sounds even better, right? But that's not what our, our standard for truth is. It's, it's not how does it make me feel, how does it sound? Uh, it is how faithful is it to either the word or the thought, depending on which philosophy you're working with, of the original. So uh, these, these translations are wildly popular, but I think you need to be careful and evaluate whether or not you should even use them at all.
Well, that's enough for this subject today. Join me next time as we broach the topic of bias in mainstream Bible translations. We're going to get into the really big ones that sell millions and millions of copies and the whole subject of translation bias. And let me tell you something, every translator has bias. It's just a little easier to see with Simmons and Peterson because they're a little more flamboyant, a little more upfront with injecting their bias but every translation has bias. And that's why it's good that we have multiple translations done from different perspectives so that we can see the bias more clearly. And we're gonna start getting into that subject next time in our continuing effort to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for today. I'd love to hear about your experience with the Message Bible or the Passion Translation. Have you heard of these translations before? Do you use them? Have you seen others using them? Uh, come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 346, Evaluating the Message Bible and the Passion Translation, and leave a comment or question there. would love to engage with you. On a previous episode, the one on gender and Bible translation, number 344, Justin wrote in saying, Great presentation on the relative influences of gender in translations. I would just point out that while I do read from the HCSB, the CSB actually goes well beyond just providing inclusiveness in their pronouns. A main point of contention I have with the newer CSB is their translation of John 1.18. As I'm sure you're aware, we have begotten God from the Alexandrian majority and begotten Son from the Byzantine. The CSB goes well beyond either translation and instead creates who is himself God in their rendering. It would appear as though Trinitarian influences may also have had a part in the CSB as well. Well, Justin, thanks for listening. I certainly do hear what you're saying about John 1.18. Uh, I don't really want to get into it too much right now because that is kind of a thorny issue, and there are interesting manuscript issues going on behind the scenes here, and scholars are pretty divided on what to do about it, with perhaps a majority leaning towards one and only God, or only begotten God, depending on how you translate that word monounis there. Uh, we'll have to see if I can circle back around to this text a little later, but you are right about Trinitarian influences and other doctrinal influences in translation, and that's in fact what, what we're going to be getting into in our next several episodes, so stay tuned for that. Durham writes in, saying, thanks, Sean, for your recent podcast in which you presented on gender translation issues and approaches. I have to say, I thought you tackled the minefield with dexterity and discretion, and I hope came out of the podcast relatively unscathed. Well, Durham, time will tell how unscathed I am by uh, poking at this issue. He goes on, interestingly, I was interested that the discussion and translational issues were all focused on heterosexual gender selection issues and did not attempt to tackle LGBT translational issues. Of course, that's the point. Assuming one were to adopt a very inclusive slash neutral heterosexual gender approach, perhaps that might be acceptable to LGBT groups, or maybe not. I guess I came away from very helpful exposure to the issues and solutions offered thinking, A, in the scheme of things, these gender translational issues are a flash in the pan compared with the time frames we are otherwise addressing, and B, Adopting the Restitutio motto of searching for and promoting authentic Christianity, for my part at least, I would hope to be focused on truly and to the best of my ability translating the accurate words that were written, referring to whatever gender was written, and then provide notes about the likely authentic meaning or understanding would have been for the text at the time they were written. But then I guess I'm a keep-it-honest-and-simple sort of guy. 
Well, let me pause you there, Durham. Uh, that's exactly what the ESV does. So ESV is probably going to be your translation of choice, uh, whereas other translations do try to bring out the implied meaning of, say, for example, the word brothers is fellow Christians, right? So they're going to render it as brothers and sisters, and uh, I, I personally think that is the right thing to do, um, but we can disagree about that. He goes on, I can understand translating approaches based on some cultural norms so as not to create confusion and to promote good understanding of God's message, but this current gender environment causes ongoing issues that will have frankly disappeared in 20 years' time. Let's be focused on achieving an authentic balance between readability and accuracy. If we feel it necessary, let's be about good footnotes. Amen to that. To explain things of a then cultural or communications nature that are different from our current post-World War II to post-millennial viewpoint, especially of political correctness. Anyway, once again, thank you for this wonderful series, Enlightening and Strengthening. Uh, John Bradley comments also that, uh, in, in response to Durham, that even many pro-homosexual scholars admit that the Bible, in its original context, condemns same-gender sexual practices unconditionally and universally. It would be a mistake to interpret the Bible through any lens of postmodernism and or cultural Marxism. Well, guys, thanks for writing in. appreciate the thoughts as far as the LGBT, etc. issue. Uh, I don't think it really comes in too much into translation. Probably the most interesting verse that translators deal with is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, uh, which I don't really want to get into right now, but uh, it, it is a verse that seems to describe both partners in a male-male sexual encounter, and uh, translators do differ pretty significantly on that, especially the NIV, as I, as I recall, translated homosexual offenders as if like homosexuality is okay, but not homosexual offenders. And that is something they changed in their 2011 update where they now render it men who have sex with men. Uh, so that, that might be an important verse to look at on this whole issue. Uh, as far as the text, in, there are, I think, two in Leviticus, those are pretty clear no matter what version you're reading. Uh, there might be some variation in Romans 1 on this whole issue, but by and large, as John pointed out, this has not really been the focus of translation controversy at, at nearly the scale of, of the gender stuff that we, we covered in that episode. So, uh, But thanks for bringing that up. Appreciate the thoughts, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do so at restitutio.org. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.